Hi everybody, welcome to CN Memes. In the upcoming episodes, I would like to respond to some recent listener comments and also to some brief text exchanges which I had on Twitter. I've actually received quite a lot of input and honestly, in the moment I cannot estimate how much of all this stuff I can discuss in the present episode. So let me just get started, maybe with the Twitter thing. So a few days ago, late evening, I was sitting on my couch, had a beer and listened to the Theories of Everything podcast, which then had Donald Hoffman and Joscha Bach as guests. And these two brilliant people were supposed to discuss consciousness, free will and so on. So this was bound to be a very interesting conversation. And it actually was. Now, it is my habit to briefly interrupt the podcast whenever some particularly outstanding or provocative sentence has been spoken and to make a short note in my smartphone. And the next morning, I'm then always collecting these notes and put them into a little yeah, idea database. So this next morning, I found two such notes And both were sentences from Donald Hoffman, or at least my short-time memories of these sentences, which may not be 100% verbatim, you know, due to the late hour and due to the beer. Anyway, one was something like, neurons don't exist when not perceived. And the other was, observations are fact creations, not fact discoveries. Now, if you know my present worldview even a little bit, then you will understand that I like these sentences a lot. And I also believe that others may find them quite thought-provoking as well. And so I decided to post them on Twitter with a simple intention to draw maybe a few more people to the work of Donald Hoffman. And just a little later, I received a reply to these tweets from another person in my Twitter bubble. I don't want to reveal the names of people here without permission, so I will just use the initials, which were RS in this case. So I'm not sure that I have understood everything what RS has written, but he definitely mentioned some important points here. So basically, he finds that provocative statements of this kind have a certain shock value And this is important to grab the initial attention of people, yeah? which is becoming increasingly difficult in our time of information overload. But then, after that, he thinks one should be very slow and careful to unpack what is actually meant by all the concepts that are behind such statements. Yeah? For example, in the sentence, neurons don't exist when not perceived, What does Donald Hoffman mean with existence in this context? I believe that I could roughly guess how Donald Hoffman would answer this question, but I don't want to speak for other people. Yeah? So let us instead think by ourselves as hobby philosophers yeah, with a beginner's mind, yeah? if I may use this phrase from Zen Buddhism. So how can we define existence at least tentatively? 
I would say that something exists if it reliably causes specific subjective experiences. I mean, clearly, if something does not leave any traces in the conscious experience of any being, it, it makes no sense to call it existing, right? But this chain of causation can either be short and direct and physical in quotation marks or long and indirect and yeah, mental. So, for example, the glass on my table is existing because I just need to look at it and it directly appears on my screen of perception. And it does so reliably. Yeah? I can leave the room, come back, and still I will find the glass standing there. I could even lock my apartment, make sure that nobody will enter it, and go living in another country for two years. And I still expect the glass to be there when I finally return. So even though I'm an idealist, I of course don't say that things only exist during this short time when they appear on my screen of perception. Yeah? But now, is this not a contradiction to the sentence neurons only exist when perceived? Of course not. And this confusion comes about exactly by a sloppy use of language, yeah? just as RS has said. The problem is that in our everyday language, we are using the word glass both for the simplified icon that appears in our screen of perception and for that which is outside of our personal mentation, yeah, in mind at large. That which causes the icon to appear on our personal screen. Yeah. The icon exists only during this short period I'm looking at it. But the cause of the icon in mind at large This cause seems to continuously exist all the time. Otherwise, we could not easily explain the persistence of our experience. If you allow me to use this computer simulation metaphor again, the information that describes the state and the properties of the glass must be encoded somewhere in the computer so that this information can be rendered freshly whenever some of the players is looking at the object from a specific perspective. Speaking about actual computer simulations, can a simulated glass of water be called existing as well? In my tentative definition of existence, yes. If I have a simulation program in my PC and I can start it whenever I want, and then reliably a glass is appearing on the PC monitor, which I can say virtually turn around and shake, then this simulated glass is existing according to my definition. It is existing in the context of the simulation at least. And we learn from this example that existence is context dependent. Yeah? In, in the same way, I would say that the characters in a novel are existing in the sense that we only need to perform a suitable series of actions, like finding the book in the shelf, open it and read the correct passage, and then the novel character will reliably appear in our conscious experience. 
It would even be sufficient if I myself have never read the novel, but if I have friends who did, and so they can tell me about the character. Yeah? Actually, it happens quite often to me that my friends or relatives are telling me about the adventures of fictitious characters in novels or in movies, just as if these fantasy characters would be biological beings. So, you see, in my tentative definition of existence, the chain that leads from the cause to the experience can be very indirect. We also have very long and indirect chains in our scientific models. For example, in which sense do atoms exist? Yeah. Nobody has ever seen an atom directly with our standard human senses. Yeah. But we can build, for instance, a raster tunneling microscope and move its extremely sharp tip, for example with a piezo crystal, over one specific atom at the surface of a sample. Yeah? And then there will be a position-dependent tunneling current, which we can feed into a computer, which will convert these local current values into a colorful map on the PC monitor. And this map then looks similar to how we have always imagined atoms, yeah? small roundish dots. But it is only a computer-generated image, yeah? driven by some very, very indirect computational process. But we can repeat this raster tunneling experiment over and over again in different circumstances. And at the end of this very long chain, we will quite reliably get a conscious experience of the so-called atoms. And so they probably exist. Of course, in the case of atoms, we have an absolutely overwhelming evidence for their existence. Yeah? Simply because they have such an amazing explanatory power in science. So maybe we would believe in their existence even if raster tunneling microscopes and similar extensions of our organs would not exist. Yeah? Take for example elementary particles, which only show up in scattering experiments, in colliders. You know? In the end, these scattering events are converted by computers into statistical histograms, which then finally appear on our screen of perceptions as scientists. But looking at some statistical plot is not quite as convincing as seeing something directly, right? In particular, if there are several competing models about which elementary particles are really there, yeah, and if all these models are to a certain degree compatible with the histograms that we draw out of these experiments. Such a very indirect evidence of existence is possible and it's particularly unsatisfactory if there is a lot of noise in the measurements, which is usually the case. So I would say that existence is not a binary feature, but it comes with a continuous degree of belief. In our normal use of the word existence, we tend to have a high confidence in the existence of something if it produces conscious experiences very reliably, with little noise, you know, with little random fluctuation, and preferably with very short chains 
between cause and experience. And in particular, if this thing also has a high explanatory power, yeah? so it can serve as a useful part of our world models. Yeah? If it is easy to integrate into our pre-existing mental web of concepts. I think in science we are often willing to trade the directness of experience for explanatory power. Yeah? And so many scientists are believing now in useful but highly, highly abstract concepts that cannot be directly experienced. Okay, so now you may ask, what about dreams? They also appear as icons on our screen of perception, yeah? even if our eyes are closed. Dreams are experiences that are usually not exactly repeatable. Yeah? Although we sometimes do have repeating dreams over a longer period of time, but this is not normal. And also we usually do not share dreams with other human beings yeah? in the way we share the objects of the so-called waking state. Yeah? But also this is possible. Yeah? It seems, at least if you search the web for shared dreams, you will find thousands of well-documented accounts where people who were sometimes far apart had the same dream at the same time. So dreams are definitely existing. Everything which is directly experienced by somebody is definitely existing, even if only for the single person who is having the experience. Yeah? And from this we learn that existence is relative to the observer. I guess that some materialists would insist that something that is not observable for everybody, at least in principle, is not really existing. Yeah? But if we restrict the definition of existence to objective things only, we are losing almost everything which really counts, yeah? at least in my life. The taste of great food, the beauty of music and art and nature, yeah? the excitement of understanding something which was unclear before. Yeah? Believing only in the objective subset of experiences is a ridiculous view in my opinion. But let me briefly come back to the dream. If we perceive so-called objective things in the waking state, we have to assume that something is there outside of our personal field of mentation, which causes the experience. Yeah? Something persistent and also dynamic must be out there, with quotation marks, in the extra-personal universe, which is of course a purely mental universe. For the idealist. But when dreams also appear as quite normal icons on our screen of perception, what is then the external cause of these dream icons? A materialist would probably say that dreams are just illusions of the brain. Yeah? But the word just here is very misleading. Think of it in terms of the computer simulation metaphor. The glass of water, with all its physical complexity, yeah? the geometry of the glass itself and the turbulent swapping water surface with all the complicated fluid dynamics, yeah? all this 
has to be encoded and correctly simulated somewhere in the computer. Yeah? The part which stores and updates the world state. So that the rendering machine can then create the icons on the desktop which we experience. The rendering machine cannot produce highly complex physical processes like a swapping light reflecting water surface when it does not receive a detailed description of the state of the water surface at each moment in time. It cannot render anything without a sufficient input. Or can it? Well, we cannot rule out this possibility. Yeah? I had a former episode called the DBN Dream World, where I discuss a similar scenario in detail. But if we stay here in the computer metaphor, the question is how much simulation power do we give to the rendering machines of the individual players and how much do we outsource to this common shared computer that stores and updates the world state. Yeah? If each individual rendering machine is extremely powerful, it may need almost no input to produce coherent and detailed experiences in the player. Yeah? We may feed it even random noise and it will turn this noise into a rule-based sequence of events in a complex world. Now, maybe some materialists will say that our brain is exactly such a powerful rendering machine and when we dream, we indeed produce stories out of noise. But I ask, why should this then be fundamentally different in the waking state? There seems to be merely a quantitative difference between the waking and dreaming state. Yeah? Especially lucid dreams can appear hyper-real. And it is conceivable, for example, that we dream to be a scientist and that we perform physical experiments in our dream world and that we construct models together with other scientists who share the knowledge with us. Yeah? There seems to be no fundamental limit to what can happen in a dream, right? So to say that dreams are just illusions is unfair and misleading. We could equally well say that the waking state is just a special type of dream where the level of persistence of the experience has, for some reason, been turned up to a very large degree, which I find quite boring, by the way. So let me wrap up what has come out of this little train of thought. We may define something as existent if it is able to reliably cause specific subjective experiences. And existence is context-dependent. Yeah? Fictional characters exist, but only in the context of the novel. And the chains which lead from the external cause to the internal experience can be quite long and indirect. If such a chain is terribly long, the thing should at least be very useful as a concept. Otherwise, we may not want to accept its existence. Yeah? And so existence is actually a belief. And as Bayesians, we can assign to it any probability value between 0 and 1. And as a belief, 
it is also relative to each individual observer. It depends on the priors of this observer, what he or she has learned already about the space of possibilities. This past section has taken much longer than I expected and I have not even applied my little definition of existence to that specific sentence of Donald Hoffman, neurons don't exist when not perceived. I think I will shift all the other listener comments to future episodes and finish up this one with a few final remarks on this Hoffman statement. First of all, the shock value of the statement, by the way, I like the term, thanks Aris. The shock value is that materialists usually consider the neurons and their connections as all that is relevant to understand brain function and ultimately our mind. But for the idealist, neurons are shockingly just icons on the screen of perception, which appear reliably whenever we perform you know, a suitable series of actions. Well, I'm not a practical scientist, so I don't know exactly what it takes to see neurons. Obviously, we need to open up the skull, take out a small sample of the brain, maybe stain it with some color, and then put it under the microscope, right? Now, for the idealist, all these things are just simplified icons. The skull, the color stains, the microscope, and the neurons. They stand, kind of symbolically, yeah, for something outside of our mentation, which we cannot know directly. And this unknown external cause, from which the neurons are just, how should I say, 3D images, yeah, this outside thing may contain a lot of hidden information and complexity, which we simply cannot perceive in our present stage of our development as a species. But in practice, we are forced to build our models of the world based on what we can perceive here and now. Yeah? In the case of the brain, there is already a mind-boggling degree of complexity, even in what we have perceived so far. But these neuron icons and their connections they may just be, you know, a low-dimensional projection of, of something even more complex and fantastic into our 3D space-time continuum. Actually, the most beautiful insight which I have gained from my turn to idealism is that there is almost certainly much more to the universe than what we can perceive with our present sense organs and with the scientific instruments we have invented so far. Yeah? And it's interesting that I could have had this insight also 
during my earlier period as a materialist, a dualist, but I haven't. You know, we humans are making the same error over and over again in the history of science. Just because it sometimes looks as if we are on the right track in science yeah? and have developed a few models that fit the data and lead to working technology, we become overconfident and then we purposefully look away from all the little dirty anomalies yeah, that are still lurking around yeah, somewhere in the fringe zone of science. Yeah? And so we start to believe that we already know all the major ingredients of the universe. But this is a fallacy which not only slows down progress, it also leads to a dead boring worldview of the people yeah, in, in which nothing fundamental is expected to change anymore. I like to visualize our situation with a graph, a network. You know, imagine a huge number of nodes or dots, which are, let's say, randomly distributed over a plane. And there are also large numbers of links between these nodes. And imagine each of these links simply as a line that connects two specific dots with each other. And in this visualization, each dot represents an aspect of the universe and two aspects are connected by a link if they are somehow related to each other, yeah? if they somehow affect each other. Let's say that these nodes and links have no color. They are transparent and therefore difficult to see, yeah? <laughs> like the neurons in the brain before Cajal has learned to stain them. Yeah? Now, imagine the subset of aspects and their mutual relations that we have already discovered so far as humans in the year 2022. Yeah? This known subpart may be an extremely tiny fraction of the whole network. Yeah? And, and let us color these corresponding nodes and links in red. This red subgraph is what we humans can perceive and understand so far. Because we have not only discovered a few nodes, but also quite a few links between those nodes, it feels as if we understand quite a lot of the universe already. Yeah? In particular, there are sub-subgraphs within our red subgraph, in which models work almost perfectly. Yeah? And many scientists like to spend their whole lives in these little cozy niches yeah? where they can accumulate details and get funding for it. Yeah? But our known subgraph also contains lots of nodes which behave in a way that cannot really be explained by the known, by the known links between these nodes and by the rest of our known subgraph. Yeah? And this must be so, because there are also many links between the huge, invisible part of the total graph and our little visible subgraph. And these strangely behaving nodes in our local red subgraph, they correspond to the anomalies in physics and to the paranormal effects and the UFO sightings and the drug experience and so on. 
And maybe if we live mentally in this little red subgraph and if this subgraph is constantly affected by unknown influences from the outside, maybe we necessarily must have eventually discovered something like the non-deterministic behavior in quantum mechanics. 